Niños en el arco, la defensa es colosal González, Orlando, La Torre, Nicolás Fuentes y Chumpitas Chalemí, Frin y Cubillas y el gran Pericoleón Bailón y Alberto Gallardo completan la selección Welcome back to the Peruvian Waltz podcast. I'm your host, Peter Galindo. As always, joining me is Christopher Viscardo. Are you over what happened on, on Sunday afternoon or are you feeling okay these days? How, what are you feeling right now? I feel at peace. I felt at peace during the game. I felt like we knew realistically that Brazil was a better team, but all our hearts, I think, wanted Peru to win. And so even though we lost the final, it wasn't by, you know, five goals. And it was a just so nice to see Peru in the final and see Peru talk, everybody talking about Peru. I mean, to me, that that's worth worth a lot already. And uh, they still got a medal, and they brought a medal home. Amen, my friend. Well, fitting that we're bringing this man back on after Copa America, the tournament that Carlos Zambrano came back from exile in and did very well, because the Carlos Zambrano of the Peruvian Waltz, Brian Birdie, is back with us. Brian, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm not as gutted as I should be about losing the final, because I saw it coming. I mean, winning in Brazil is just, it's near impossible for a team like Peru these days. It's the unfortunate truth. Like, Brazil has lost four times at home ever. The time we did beat them in Brazil was with a team full of world-class players, and they had a team full of players from Minas Gerais. So it's a totally different situation. I'm glad we gave it our all. Like, we, we kept it respectable, and that's, that's what kept me satisfied. But, yeah, as much as I am sad to lose the final, I'm not as gutted as I would be if we lost it with another team from South America. That's as much as I can say. Yeah, I think everybody's in agreement with that. Speaking of that final, we will get into it now. So Peru obviously losing 3-1 to one to Brazil. It was 2-1 to one for the longest time until the debatable, let's call it, penalty happened and Richarlison buried the third goal, thus wrapping up the victory for Brazil, who were playing with 10 men for the last 20 minutes after Gabriel Jesus was sent off after a foul on Carlos Sambrano, ironically enough. But that being said, guys, the defense more or less did a decent job. The attack, however, it struggled much like it has in a couple of games in this tournament. So the opening question to you, Viz, why do you think the attack struggled as much as it did? I know they went up against Brazil, who had a very staunch defense. Their tactics were nailed to perfection, but still, it it felt like something was missing, wasn't it? It did. It was the exact same team that we saw just a few days before that against Chile. And it was, a, in a way, a different team. I think that 50% of the answer is the fact that it was Brazil. And like you said, Peter, their tactics were spot on. Like, honestly, I, I've never seen such a, a team that was so glued in, so just so well, just worked together so well. And honestly, the, the pressure that they were exerting upon the Peruvian team felt like Peru did not have a chance to think of where it is that they wanted to pass the ball. You know, when it, when it was any of the, of the men in the top half of the field, we weren't connecting passes because they were breathing on us, in my opinion. I mean, honestly, just spot on from Brazil's side. On the other side, I think we saw some of the same issues that uh, we had been seeing in the past with Tapia, with Yotun, and how important they are. And and if they're playing well, then I think the rest of the team uh, that 
that is in front of them will play well also. And so to me, that's the other half of the equation. They just didn't have that, that great of the night, which is there anyone else that's better in Peru? I, I don't know. Will Gareca start looking at other variants like Aquino? Maybe those two, Tapia and Yotun, need to have some friendly competition to step up their game. Because they stepped up their game against Chile, for sure. Mm -hmm. But then against Brazil, it felt like we were falling back into the same rut. And and we kind of, we, we've seen friendly competition in the national team before. And so maybe having Aquino and having uh, Canchita as options to replace them will make him want to try a little bit harder. Yeah, this actually transitions nicely into the Tapia Yotun conversation because... Yes, Brazil's tactics were spot on. Um, I thought they pressed very well. I thought Artur ran that midfield exceptionally. But I found, at least with Yotun doing this, he held onto the ball too long. You look at the build-up to that second goal for Brazil. He gets the ball back. He knows Firmino is chasing him down, and yet he holds onto it far too long, coughs up possession. Artur takes it the other way. Unfortunately, those slips happen. Jesus goes in, clearing on goal, and scores. So, Brian, I'll go to you on this then. What were your overall thoughts on Tapia and Yotun in the final itself? Uh, not just in the final, but I thought in general, they were not very good in this tournament. Tapia was, okay, defensively, he was on and off. Like some games he did well defensively, uh, some games he didn't. But for the most part, one thing I think we can all agree on is his passing was way too slow. And he was not great at playing it out the back. So that's one thing that, that can be said for every single game about Tapia. Yotun, on the other hand, I saw I had a debate with someone today. I don't remember who put him on the on their team of the tournament. I said I don't think Yotun should be on there. I mean, I said it was a good team, but I don't think Yotun should be on there. And some guy said, but Yotun played the best game versus Chile, and I think that's the main point. It was just one game where he played well, and uh, Yotun, in my opinion, had a pretty tor poor tournament. He was very imprecise versus Uruguay, very imprecise versus Brazil. You know, the Chile game is very significant. Like I think it, it had a. Uh, big importance and that was a great time to play a great game uh, that he needs to play because much of much of Peru clicks through him but uh for the most part i don't think he had a great tournament it is a good point because for the most part they really did not play well and yet viz we saw in the final that yotun and tapia were both taken out of the game when brazil went down to 10 men now tapia you can kind of understand because you mm. want to take off the more defensive-minded player he looked like he was struggling a little bit maybe carrying a knock of some kind we don't really know but then when yotun came off the rhythm just completely went away for peru and then eventually brazil took over control of the game won that penalty and took the game out of reach what did you make of those changes specifically taking off yotun uh, we had this conversation, I know, in the chat, um, and we kind mm -hmm. of understood Gadeka's thinking, but at the same time, could he have maybe done it a little bit differently? I mean, I still believe that Peru has a short bench, and I think that's somewhat of the of an issue. I think that uh, seeing Canchita come in was also good. I understand Gadeka's logic. Gadeka's logic, we, we've seen him do this before, and we've seen him do it kind of both ways when it's been defensively like he did it against Costa Rica, and offensively, like he did against Colombia in the final match for the World Cup qualifying campaign, which is that Gareca, when he when it comes down to the wire, and when you know that you either need to just save yourself from being scored on, or you need to score, 
he will throw in whichever pieces he needs to. In the game against Colombia, for example, he throws in Jordi and Rui Diaz just to try to pack up the front as much as possible and try to see if he can go for the second goal against Colombia. I think that's the exact same thing that he was trying this time around, which was to push Brazil, pack the front. They are down to 10. We can just keep the pressure up high. But obviously what he didn't realize was that what was keeping Peru on that side of the field was Tapia and Yotun. And obviously that's the mistake right there. Without that connecting piece between one side and the other, then Brazil is going to get control of the ball again. And that's exactly what happened. And I think it was also very smart of Brazil, like managing to cool down the game and managing to kind of get us stuck on one little tiny corner of the field. I think poor Adinkula did like four or five throw-ins in a row. Each time he threw the ball in, it was just like one of the Brazilians would just throw it back out again, just just to like frustrate us. And unfortunately, it worked. Uh, and it really got the team disconcerned and disconnected from what was going on. You know, they, they played it well, but could something have been done to kind of change the tactics of the game? You could have done a transition, especially if you won more offensively. But Gareca's uh, transition was unfortunately too abrupt. I was going to jump in there. I, I'd say I agree with Viz on that point. That uh, there was like a good five, six minutes where the Brazilians would just try to keep the ball out and uh, try and waste time via those throw-ins. They, they, they did it very well. And like Viz said, it just kind of disconnected the Peruvians there. There wasn't much we could do, really. No. And it wasn't aided by the fact, again, that there wasn't an orchestrator in midfield to really get the play back into that final third of Brazil either. But again, would it have been a guarantee that Peru gets one back the way that Brazil was defending? Chiche threw on Eder Militao to put in three defenders, three center backs, and they kind of play with like a back five. And they looked pretty solid, didn't look bothered at all. So who knows? But at the very least, it would have been kind of interesting to see what would have happened if Peru had more control past the 78th, 80th minute in that game. Um, so that part made it a little bit disappointing in the end. Speaking of disappointing, the defense overall, like I said off the top, guys, was decent. Crucial slips led to that second Brazilian goal from Jesus. Miscommunication allowed Everton to score the opener. And the third goal was a questionable penalty to some. But on that Everton goal, the opening... You can say that that is on Abincula and maybe even Tapia for that miscommunication, maybe even Gaese, because you could have seen Everton running to the back post and could have warned them. But overall, it seemed like Abincula really struggled again against Brazil, much like he did in the 5-0 loss in the group stage. So, Brian, is that a fair assessment? To me, Abincula was maybe the weak link in that team, and you could see that Brazil were trying to expose him time and time again. Now, I think the problem, and this is one of the later topics, so I apologize if I kind of spoil it. But yeah, go ahead. I, I think the problem was that Carrillo played on the left, and you had an injured Flores play on the right. Now, I can see why Gareca would try that, because Danny Alves has been one of the best players, and uh, uh, Gareca wanted to keep him at bay, which it worked. It, it worked. They, Danny Alves didn't uh, impact the game too much. But uh, I, I feel like that was also a mistake, because in the first game, you have Andy Polo, who doesn't do a lot of defending. And that's why Abincula struggled so much. I think Carrillo needed to uh, uh, do all the defending, which, of course, what do you do against Danny Alves? I mean, Flores was always was not at 100%, so it was going to be tough to keep one of them at bay. But 
I also want to say that Bimpula really improved in the second half. At least around the 60th minute mark, we saw a real improvement from Bimpula. And I feel like Dazu Carrillo moved to the right. But I also feel like his general play improved. Because I noticed Carrillo not only covered for him, but like in the first half, Bimpula, I noticed some moments when he went up and he was just walking back instead of taking it wasn't even like a casual jog he was literally walking back to his position and that was a bit worrying because brazil really took advantage of that space yeah and speaking of that question that we did actually get um, mr basan 12 asked us do we think it was a mistake to both start orejas and why have orejas edison flores that is on the right side and carrillo on the left side Brian answered the latter portion of that question for sure. Viz, do you think it was a mistake to start Orejas considering his questionable injury status leading up to that game? Yeah, but like we've said a hundred times in the podcast before, unfortunately, Peru needs to take more chances at goal, and Orejas does that. He takes chances. He, If there's someone that, in my opinion, increases that stat that is Peru is lacking is Orejas. He has, I mean, I was just looking at his record. He has 13 goals with the national team. Yep. He'll be in the top 10 uh, goal scorers for the national team within the next year or two. Like, honestly, it's insane to think about that. And because of that, he just brings so much to the team. I mean, he, he had a, a wonderful game against Chile, too. So even if he wasn't 100%, I see why Gareca was tempted to play him. As to the whole switching back, I did notice that it seemed to me like the left side of the field was overused, overabused. We talked about how how Flores and how Carrillo can kind of switch places and move around and be free and roam around and make something happen. But with that, what we needed to see was also just trying, you know, balancing that out. Like you have the left and it was used and abused. Well, try, try it on the right a little bit. Maybe them switching spots had something to do with that this this balance, but obviously you become somewhat predictable if you know that all the good quality chances are always going to be coming from the left, or at least that's where the team is going to be trying to create chances on the left. I think we would have been a little more unpredictable if we had taken opportunities on the right more often. Yeah, and then maybe it could have led to Carrillo going back to that right side, therefore giving protection to Advincula. Who knows, right? But it's like Brian said, you understand why Agareca did it in terms of putting Orejas on the right and Carrillo on the left. It's almost like a pick-your-poison situation, right? Do you want Advincula to be exposed against Everton? Do you want Danny Alves to influence the game? That's why it's so difficult to play against Brazil, especially at home, because they just got so many different ways to exploit you. And we saw them do that in multiple ways in this final, as well as in the 5-0 loss and in most of the games that they played. And to wrap up the final, we got a question from Andrew Nardino asking, does Sambrano's senseless penalty at the end of the final ruin his otherwise stellar Copa America? Discipline has obviously been a problem with him and he seemed to be doing much better until yesterday. So Brian, I'll ask you that and also ask you kind of a question to tie it in. Do you think it was a fair penalty to call? I think it was a bit of an excessive uh, shoulder-to-shoulder defending. So I can see why it was given, but I have no real opinion on the penalty. I, it just kind of is to me because, um, again, I can see why it was given. If they look excessive. I don't obsess over the law, so I don't know what um, – I don't know if it was a 
was a real penalty or not. Apparently, Tomat explained to Dione Ragliati at the, at the airport why he gave, he gave it. I got to look up back at the quote. I, I, I just remember back. Apparently, he gave it because it was excessive. It was something like that, but that's that's all I remember. And as for the question, Sambrano does still concern me a little bit, if you if you ask me. I mean, there's no doubt about his talent. Uh, he started this tournament looking a little shaky, but really grew in onto it as time went on. But I'm still not convinced about his discipline. I mean, you think about it, he got two or three yellow cards in the tournament, which is more than average. He also conceded two penalties, which I know one Peter's going to disagree on one of those, but... Still, that's still one more penalty you should be conceding in the tournament. So it still is a bit concerning. And not also looking at his disciplinary record at Dazzle, and it's not as great as you think it'd be. Uh, he's already got a red card for it, which, I mean, one red card is one more than you'd expect. I mean, players can get unlucky reds all the time, but, like, seeing some Bernardo get one, it's, it doesn't really get my uh, get me too excited. So that's my main worry about Sambrano, but he's had a good tournament, and uh, at least he didn't get sent off this time. So that's the good thing. That's the best thing we can say about it. But yeah, he's had a good tournament overall, if we ignore that. So Viz, because you were the apologist in the end for Sambrano, what, what do you make of that question and just the overall situation surrounding that? So first of all, if I'm going to be a little bit of an, a Sambrano apologist, I feel like the first penalty was shouldn't have been awarded. I think that he was obviously covering his face, and we saw that in the match, I believe it was Columbia Couture, where there was a very similar situation in which a penalty was not granted, and I'm, I think it was just instinctual that he was trying to cover, cover his face. But as to the comment from Brian that he got a lot of yellow cards that he considered a penalty and so forth, well, he's a center back. He's the last line of defense, and when it comes down to that, you got to play rough. You got to do what you got to do to protect that ball from going in. And so, in my opinion, I believe that those two players that play center back are probably the one most prone to getting booked. You know, yellow cards, red cards, than everyone else in the field. An example of that that comes to mind is, I believe it was Rodriguez or Ramos in the game against Ecuador during the qualifiers. And unfortunately, yeah, a penalty was granted to Ecuador, but they did what they had to. And and so it just it, these kind of situations just happen. I think that if there's something that Zambrano brings to the defense is that, I have to admit it, he, he brings a lot of character and a lot of leadership. I'm not so much about the whole, oh, he brings a lot of experience, because I, I do feel like Santa Maria has had some experience himself. I mean, he's, he's played more World Cup matches than he most of all, all the other players in Peru. I can clearly remember a scene, I believe, in the game against Bolivia at the very beginning where Kim and Abraham almost run for the exact same ball and Zambrano has to very literally push him out of the way, almost like, this is not where you're supposed to be right now. We can't both go for the same ball. I felt like that was very indicative of what he was bringing to that defense. And honestly, it's the closest thing that we have to Mudo Rodriguez, so I am more than happy to have him there. I'd be more than happy to have him there, at least for now, for this next qualifying campaign. I think that we need Zambrano. And until then, we can think of a replacement, if, if, you, if you so want. Well, to go back to defend myself a little bit, 
I kind of disagree with your point about the being extra rough. I mean, you do have a, there is an element of truth in what you say, but you look at Luis Abram and he only conceded one penalty and got no yellow cards. So I slightly disagree with that. I mean, I, I do I do think that Sabrao should be the center back for the next qualifiers, uh, at least until he uh, loses his chance again, because I have a feeling he might get sent off soon again, just because of uh, I, I've seen some of those fouls. They just look a little bit extra rough to me. They were. But uh, that does concern me a little bit, and his disciplinary record does speak for it, in my opinion. Well, just for clarification, because some people might be wondering, oh, well, how many yellow cards or red cards did this player get or that player get? Remember Gary Medell got sent off in that third place game, but we can take that out because third place games at the end of the day, they're kind of a wash to me. Luis Abincula also got three yellow cards. I believe Arturo Vidal got three yellow cards. Thiago Silva got two. The average is about two yellow cards for teams that played five or six games. So the fact that Sambrano ended up getting three, yeah, it's a little bit over the top. And some of those challenges he was going into were very aggressive. I, I yes. can specifically remember, I think it was the Venezuela game. He went into some really hard challenges and I was watching the games with my dad and I turned to him and I said, he's going to get booked eventually. And I don't think he did get booked in that first game, but it was very close to happening. It just depends what kind of referee you have. So it's probably something to be careful of and to be mindful of going into the qualifiers especially if Sambrano continues to be kind of rash in that way. You can say what you want about the last penalty that he, that he conceded. He probably didn't mean to do that. And also, Pedro Gallese had to come out quicker for that ball. I don't know why he waited that long. And that probably led to Sambrano doing that, but he has to be more mindful, I believe. So yes. moving on to the campaign as a whole, guys. They obviously made it to their first final in 44 years, did Peru. There were some good moments, some bad moments. So putting all of that together, what letter grade would you give Peru's Copa America campaign? So Viz, we'll start with you. You are correct. I believe it was 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. So 2-1, two, 2 loss, 2 draws. They made it to a final, which was something that needed to happen, especially when you have 2011 and 2015, both wonderful third-place matches. You know, we won uh, two bronze medals. At some point, Peru had to make it past that semifinal. You know, Peru has played, like, what, eight semifinals and only made it pass through twice? So I, I think that because of that, even though there is was issues with the team, I'm going to go with a B plus, almost an A minus, but not quite. Brian, what letter grade would you give Peru for the Copa America campaign? I was thinking similarly as Biz. I think a B plus or an A minus. I would give it a bit higher, but there was really no, besides the Chile game, there was really no standout match. I think Peru was a mix of resilience and then uh, uh, mature and when they need to perform. But like it, it wasn't like as consistent performances as, let's say, the World Cup qualifiers were. It seemed like every game you know what to expect. So uh, here with Peru, I, I wasn't sure what to expect. That's why I was so worried about the Chile game. If we played as well against Uruguay as we did Chile and won, I would have been more than confident we would have won that, but I wasn't. So they did get to the final after all, so you can't really give them a low grade. I do think that um, there was a little bit of worry about consistency, but I thought things were going to get stale in the Gareca, like I said before. But I think he's uh, refiguring it out. I think he just needed to... Um, I think the team went through a mental block where they, they were believing they were better than anyone else, like Chile did, and that the Brazil 5-0 result needed to happen, I think, for us to get to the final. 
Well, I'm going to be harsh and say B plus just because, and I know that that sounds harsh for a team that made their first final in 44 years, but all the points you guys made were totally correct. They had, I think, a newfound tactical discipline. They rediscovered their defensive solidity. You look at their expected goals against, they were conceding, I think at most, apart from the Brazil game, I think it was like 1.1 expected goals from non-penalty. So basically any situation that wasn't a penalty, they were actually very stingy. And that needed to happen because during the friendlies, Peru were very, very leaky. Just remember that Colombia game, for example, although two of those goals happened after Yotun got sent off. But still, the solidity was usually there. It came back. Tactically, I thought they were very, very strong. My only reason for, for deducting perhaps the grade going from an A to a B plus is the attack was just so inconsistent. And I know that some of it had to do with how they set up, but they're still too hesitant to shoot. That has to change. That is something that we'll talk about. I'm sure in a few minutes here, when we maybe ask about what we think needs to improve and what did we like overall from the team, but that is certainly an area that for me struggled. And then on top of that, Tapia and Yotun were just a little bit too inconsistent for my liking. Um, so that brings the letter grade down just a smidge. So overall, I think a B plus is probably fair. So on that subject, is there anything that Peru can build on, specifically Gareca can build on, um, that we saw at this tournament? Viz, what do you think Peru can take from this tournament and say, yes, we are actually building towards something here? Well, first of all, I think finding two center banks for the next qualifying campaign is very, very important. I am firmly of the belief that you build teams from the back forward. And so I know that there's issues with the attack, but the fact that Abram and Zambrano seem like a, a very good pair of center backs, I think that's very, very valuable. And then building the team around that or building the team from that, uh, to me, gives me a lot of peace of mind to know that we have a pretty decent defense. Um, from there, I think that Gareca shouldn't be afraid to try out different players and, and, and new possibilities. We we have to try stuff out some more and see if we can deepen our bench because we can't we cannot be depending on just Jatun and, and Tapia for you know for the next three or four years. We we just yeah. need to find a few more replacements for that. That to me is also a takeaway. And also, I think the most important one is just psychologically, uh, mentally, you can say that we can do hard things. We can accomplish things. We came out with eight points in the end, you know, from this tournament. Uh, I think that we can have a better campaign away from home in the qualifiers than we did last time. You know, uh, last time we got, what, two two wins on the road, one draw, maybe two. I think we can get more points on the road this time. I think we're getting that confidence that, the other teams in South America are not giants that cannot be defeated. Hopefully, I want to see a good game against Uruguay and Montevideo. I want to see a decent game against Colombia. I want to see us beat Chile and Santiago. I, I mean, the, the, that kind of thing, I think, is, is very important. Uh, Brian, I'll ask you both in one, because Viz sort of touched on both. What do you think Peru can build on? And also, what do you think still needs work, having watched these games at Copa America? 
looking at these options, I'm a little bit concerned about the lack of recambio, I guess you could say. Don't know how I would say that in English. Just the new generation, I guess. Because we look at the squad, like we always say Chile is a very old squad, and they are older than us. The average age is a lot. I think it's a bit older than us. I haven't double-checked Peru's average age, but when you think about it, the likes of Carrillo, Yotun, and Cueva, they are not that young anymore. Like they're past 28 years old. Uh, Rui Diaz, Rui Diaz, I don't think it's Paolo's replacement because he is almost 30 years old as well. So uh, I, that's a slight concern. Tapia, uh, I'm going to say Aquino because I'm assuming he comes back. Uh, Flores, they're there for a few years. Trapo's there for a few years. Uh, the most key players, the one that gets Peru clicking, like Carrillo, Adincula, and Yotun, they are not that young. And that is a bit of a concern. So, um, and there's obviously Guerrero, who's 35 years old, and then Farfan, who's 34, and also going to turn 35 this year. So that, that's why I'm in concern. Uh, the center racks, we should be okay, because uh, Sambrano, I think it's always good to have some experience. And like I said, I think uh, if he still keeps his chance, I think he should stay um, on the national team, because that's something other than Muro Rodriguez is the experienced one. I think Sambrano could be in this one. And then we have another young center back in Abraham. So... I think that's one good thing. The midfield is probably something I work towards or work upon because you know what I'm going to say, Peter. Uh, I think Alexis Arias should be jumped to the team as one of them. And then there's another option where you can move Trauco to the midfield, place of Yatu, which he still has got a lot of years in him. I know Trauco had a um, good performance on left back, but uh, I think Marcos Lopez, who I criticized before the tournament, is finally getting on. Is finally getting on well with uh, San Jose Earthquakes. So that's that's a good sign to see. And I think he can play left back. But then there's the question: Do you really want to sacrifice Tarako's left back position and then have two left backs there, uh, and only have one left back with no backup? So that's another question you could ask. On the average age of Peru with Paolo and Jefferson Farfan, because of course they can kind of skew that a little bit. Peru's average age at this tournament was 27.2 years. You take them out, it's still 26 and a half, which is about on the upper average side, but it could still use a little bit of lowering. And I think that's something Gareca might want to look at, especially heading into 2020 Copa America, as well as these qualifiers, specifically later on, like 2021, as you mentioned, Brian, some of those players are going to be 30, 31 years old. Like, for example, when the World Cup kicks off, Abincula Yotun, the 1990 generation, is going to be 32 years old, right? And sure, they're still going to be solid players, but they might lose a step. Who knows, right? The biggest concern about that, Carrillo in particular, is one that I'm really worried about because what is going to be Carrillo when he loses his pace? I mean, Farfan lost his pace, but Farfan is so much more complete than Carrillo. Carrillo, I'm not saying he's just uh, someone who runs the, runs the fence, but uh, he's part of the reason he's so good is because he's, he's fast and uh, he he can dribble past defenders well, but like he uses his speed to get past those players. So once he loses his speed, what are we gonna do? We can lose it when he's 30, 31. I mean that's that's a bit excessive, I think, but I, I think more realistically, 33 or 34, he'll lose it, or he can get a big injury and then lose it there. So that's my biggest concern. And uh, Albincula is similar, but I think Albincula needs a little less just because he's not in the same position as Carrillo. But still, that, that's one concern I have. Yeah, I think that's totally fair enough. Moving on, we got one last question, actually two questions to wrap up the Copa America portion before we look ahead. Abel Gamarra at Avalanda81 asked us, 
What has been Gareca's greater achievement, World Cup qualification or the Copa America final? My personal choice is making the World Cup, but the final is a very close second. That is what Abel said. Viz, would you agree with that? Do you think that the World Cup qualification is the bigger deal? I personally think it is myself because you got to play 18 qualifiers to get into the World Cup, whereas you only got to play, what, five games to get to the Copa America final, um, even though it is a good achievement in itself. I think both of them are just as important. I think that if you really push me, that I'll say that the, the, the World Cup's more important. But, I mean, there's a reason why we have league tournaments and cup tournaments. One of them will show how well you do over the span of a long period of time. And the other one is about how well you can do in a short period of time. Can you get the results that you need to keep moving forward? And I'm kind of comparing, you know, the qualifiers to your league and the Copa America to your cup. Well, Copa, cup, no da. So... To me, both are important. I think that Peru's golden generation in the 30s and in the 70s accomplished both. And so Gareca is, is right on pace on that. The hope would be that uh, we can tweak things just a little bit more as to allow us to, to win a Copa America. We still have another chance next year. But then, obviously, 2022 World Cup is also just as important. Absolutely, it is. Moving over to Paolo Guerrero, because we got a question on his legacy from Bartolo Colon at Fat Colon. Uh, that's a play on words of MLB pitcher Bartolo Colon, of course. What is Paolo Guerrero's legacy? So, Brian, what is it now that he has both become the leading, leading active scorer in Copa America history, obviously finished on top of the scoring charts, but didn't win the golden boot because Everton played fewer minutes than he did. But at 35 years old, he's just continuing to kind of build that legacy up even further. My my dad says that he's the greatest nine Peru's ever had. And when you think about it, he's probably right. I mean, he's very underappreciated in Europe. So Europeans might see it as a, oh, that's the best nine they've had, but it can't be that good. But um, when you think about it, like, Players like Alberto Gallardo, Hugo Sotil, they weren't really nines. They were more number tens. I mean, like Gallardo, you can make the argument, but I, Hugo Sotil was more of a number ten. It, it is hard to say. I think you can make an argument between him and Claudio Pizarro. Obviously, Guerrero has made a better career in uh, nas- national football, but uh, you could make the argument Pizarro has had a better career. Uh, well, he, you know, Pizarro has had a better career, a more decorated career than Guerrero at club level. But then you can, you can really choose who's been the better player in their prime, I think. So, yeah, that, that's what I would say. From what I can gather, I think that's a fair assessment to make that Guerrero is the best nine in their history because we've not been a nation that's had a ton of nines, mostly playmakers and defenders. That is definitely very true. Moving into the future of La Selección, because this is something that we did after the World Cup, we kind of looked ahead to the future. Now that we are a year or so into this next cycle, or this current cycle, I guess, we now look to basically what will be coming up here. And before we get into all the listener questions, because the vast majority of them were looking at the future, Gareca pointed to this in his press conference, and this kind of goes back to, you know, who can fill in for Tapian Yotun? Who can fill in for this player, that player? But Gareca was talking about how encouraged he is by the quality of youth players coming through, specifically mentioning Jesus Pretel by name, who's going to be playing at the Panamericanos in a couple of weeks. Now, he also did say that he, obviously, the caveat is, these players need to play in Liga 1. 
obviously they can't develop if they don't get regular minutes with a first team. So Viz, do you feel maybe as encouraged or feel the same way as Gadeka does with these younger players coming through? Yeah, I, I think that I'm personally looking forward to the Panamericanos. I think that it's a good chance for Peru to try out some of their younger players. I'm deeply disappointed with the generation that played the under-20s this year, especially because they had such a good track record earlier on, uh, you know, 15 and 16 categories. Uh, and then from there, even though more resources has, have been spend on them than maybe in any almost any other generation in the last decade. Fortunately, they underperformed. They barely got a, a victory against Uruguay, and that was about it. And so this is going to be a chance for them to reivindicate themselves during these Pan Am games. But yeah, obviously going to, into Liga 1, yes, I know that Brian complains of what's going on in Alianza Lima and the fact that we don't give these younger players a chance. But I do at the same time appreciate some of the work that clubs like San Martin do, where Galese was formed, where Cuevita was formed, that give these younger players a chance. And yeah, that, that is our hope that no, nobody's going to do this work for us. If we want to sell players abroad, we need to show them off in our domestic league. That's simply put. And obviously, which we're going to get to because we got about three or four questions about this, for the love of God, Let's hope some of them are strikers because they are in desperate need of them. That is for sure. The first listener question that we got on the future of La Selección comes from Queso at ALPHVN. Do you guys think Gareca should call up some fresh names to try out? And he mentions Christian Benavente as one of them. I'm not sure Christian Benavente will make the list, at least if he returns to Europe, maybe, but... As it stands, that's not looking likely. So, Brian, uh, do you think Gadeca needs to freshen up this squad? Yes, absolutely. Uh, like I said, some of these players are not that young. I'm going to give a few. I'm just going to fire a few names up there. Uh, Christopher Olivares as possible nine. Uh, I mean, he's not played a lot of first team minutes, but I think if he shows he's back at Cristal, if he shows something during Herrera's injury, or maybe when Herrera comes back and just performs this the same way he has in the first half of the season, I'll give you a hint. It was crap. Uh, I think that Olivares, Olivares might be able to get a few first team minutes. The problem with Olivares is that he's a bit arrogant. I've noticed he does a lot of skills and tricks and whatnot instead of trying to score. That's my main concern of him. But I think he's a he's a nerd del futuro. I think that he's a the player we should look at, especially when we look at Ivan Bulos, who looks finished at national level. Rui Diaz, who is older than we think. Jose Reina, who didn't look like he was going to be the talent he was supposed to be. Christopher Olivares is just a chance, although not yet. I want to see how he does with Cristal first before we think about calling him to the La Selección. There's Andy Polar, who I dear hope to God that he is not just an altitude player because he's shown signs that he might be, but with that much talent, uh, I'm going to say he's not. We'll see how he does in the Panamericanos, but he's, he's, he's an insane player. Like I said, he's the best player in the Peruvian League at the moment. Part of it because he looks insane in Juliaca and he looks pretty good a, gr uh, a more grounded level. His Pratel is good, and I'm glad he got a couple of Copa America, even if he just went for tourism. But uh, the Pratel, the, the thing is, he's not as good as Aquino or Tapia, and he won't he won't become that. I don't think Aquino was already the best player in the league at his age. But Pratel still has an exciting future. 
Uh, Ozzy Mora, I've rated him a lot, but I, have to, I still think he's too soon. I, he tends to disappear from games a lot uh, in San Martin. Quebel, of course, who looks to be another Flores. Like, he did play similarly. They're not too fast, but they're good at dribbling. They have a lot of tricky little skills. And uh, they score a lot of goals. So, yeah, I think the Panamericano is going to be one to watch. But uh, the Liga Uno, it's definitely the main tournament that we, we've got to pay attention to. Yeah, in a tournament setting, too, wearing the national team shirt. Yes, okay, it might not be the primary youth competition, especially because this is kind of looking ahead to the Olympics, um, which, of course, Peru will try to qualify for. So we shall see with that. But obviously, yes, pay attention in Liga Uno because there are some exciting young talents that – Brian did mention, and Kevin Cavello, by the way, looks like could be going to Europe. We don't know. He's one of the top scorers in Liga Uno right now with 11 goals. So he's doing very well for himself. Maybe a more abroad can help him out. One more name, Carlos Cavello. Almost forgot about him. He didn't come to the Panamericanos. God knows why. I think he's an excellent player. Uh, and he could be a Vinculas replacement once he's, once he's done. So I almost forgot about him. Just like Roberto Villamarín, Brian. Just like Roberto Villamarín. Am I right? He, he, he disappointed me so much. <laughs> I, I, I had him as the next big thing, and he's done nothing with it. Oh, well. oh my God. It happens. It happens. So next question from Diego Andrade at Diego underscore 1700. Do you figure that Gareca rolls with the same squad, barring injuries, in World Cup qualifiers? It feels like this squad has performed best in the Gareca era, but he always seems to make small modifications every year. What do you think about that, Viz? We need to figure out a good way on how to make modifications without just losing the team altogether. We can't be a Jenga tower, basically. And sometimes it feels like we're a little bit of a Jenga tower. So I agree in that like, we, we just need to make those little modifications, which Gareca has done in the past, especially during the friendlies, not be scared of, you know, uh, really trying other things out that might might actually be for our benefit in the future. Somehow we need to find a fine balance between grinding out results, maintaining a good level uh, as a national team, but at the same time also finding tweaks and, you know, different variations of players that can uh, help us out in the qualifying campaign. Twitter user Adam Brandon, basically the one who uh, found me and uh, made me made me what I am today. I, I gotta thank him for that. But the the thing he said, he said something I agree with completely, and I think it's something we need to grow out of. Is Peruvian and Chilean players tend to have a peak late. There's like a little bit of a cycle, maybe not a cycle, but it's basic. It's the same every single time. This young player, it's always promise, then dip, and then rise. And I agree completely with him. And I think we need to evolve from that because if we're going to have players in Europe, we need them to be promised and then rise immediately. I think if they dip, that's that's a big problem for us. That That's why most of our players don't play in Europe. I think there's a few notable exceptions in Chile's case. I think Bidal was the one that rose very quickly. Uh, Sanchez kind of had a little bit of a dip. But the, but the point is, he, he makes a very good point about both us and Chileans. And I think that that is uh, something we, we need to grow out of. So moving on to another listener question from Ralph Rodriguez at rrodriguez1007. Any transfer rumors for the squad? All I've gathered was for Tapia to a Mexican club, 
By the way, love the podcast. Thank you, Ralph, for that. Yes, uh, Tapia has been linked to Cruz Azul in recent days where he would join Yoshimar Yotun if that were to go through. Feyenoord allegedly accepted an offer from Mexico. There was no word on who the club was, but it looks like it was indeed Cruz Azul. Uh, so outside of Tapia, we've also seen Miguel Trauco. Apparently there were three offers that were sent directly to his agent, but he was back in training today with Flamengo and with Jorge Jesus there. Maybe he gets a chance. We don't know. But he was last linked to Rennes in Liga in France, San Lorenzo, as well as Liga MX. It looks like Luis Advincula is going to get bought permanently by Rayo for 3 million euros, but they will then shop him to another club. He has plenty of interest in La Liga. Leganes is one of those teams that are monitoring him. So we'll see what happens there. Pedro Gaese, there's a clause in his contract that allows him to sign for another club after Copa America. So he might go back to Veracruz just to kind of formulate that move. But that maybe isn't looking too likely, but we'll see. That could change in, in a few days. And then the last two that we've kind of seen come prominently, at least. Monarcas Morelia supposedly rejected two European offers before Copa America for Edison Flores who announced that he'd be leaving the club at the end of the clausura. But as of right now, he's set to return to Monarcas for preseason training. And then lastly, Andre Carrillo was set to be reunited with former coach George Jesus at Flamengo. Benfica, however, were asking for about 15 million euros for Carrillo before Copa America. So maybe they might have worked out some sort of arrangement or deal to get him because it looks like he would sign there permanently to Flamengo, which I think would be a not too bad move. So from there, we are going to get into the question that I think literally every Peruvian fan wants to hear and also have answered. And it has to do with the number nines, which we kind of touched on there. Certainly Brian mentioned one candidate, but so we got three different questions from at my stummy hurt and then at heat Alea and then hello at Alex Eagles 86, uh, basically asking where does Peru get its next striker? Brian mentioned Olivares there. I know Viz has mentioned Juriel Selly at times as well, even though he's not maybe specifically a number nine, but could maybe play there. We also got a couple of interesting questions in terms of maybe players in the current player pool who could contribute. So Herted asked us, is Jordi Reina making a comeback? So Viz, do you see Jordi maybe coming back? Well, when someone's striking, when someone's scoring that many goals, then he always has, you know, a possibility of coming back. I think that Jordi just lacks a little bit of character. I think that his time to shine was against that El Salvador game. Literally, like, it feels a little bit like giving a little kid a bike with training wheels, and then somehow you still find him, you know, <laughs> flopped over on the side of the, oh on the sidewalk. God. It's like, dude, you have training wheels. How, how is it? How is it you fell from the bike, Jordi? Probably one of the easiest teams on the planet. You had plenty of chances. We gave you about every ball there was. Then again, Brian did bring up the whole idea that you know sometimes, or most of the times, Peruvian players don't get to their prime till late. So we know that Jordi was a promise from, you know, the U-20s that he played in. And so who knows? I, I think he still has a chance. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Especially if Farfan sticks around, I don't, I don't know if there's going to be any more room for potential forwards uh, in the team. Yeah, maybe. But he has done very well as a second striker with the Whitecaps, partnering someone up front. Three goals in his last four games in that position. Maybe 
if Gadeka wants to maybe look at two up front, he could be a candidate. But for now, I'd probably agree with you on that. Brian, an inter- interesting question from Stuart Asensio at Stu Asensio asking, do you believe that Edison Flores could be a striker and at times replace Paolo and have Canchita take Orejas' current position as either a left winger or in the midfield, wherever you want to put him? What would you say to that? It's honestly not something I've thought of. I think Flores is just a little bit too short for that. I think he'll be another example of another Rui Diaz, and um, he definitely has the hold-up play for it. I think Flores does a great one-touch football, but I think he does it from the wing. I'm not sure how we do it centrally. We've already seen kind of a glimpse of that playing as a six, which I know is a very different role, but uh, I've not I've not been a big fan of it, to be honest. Maybe as a nine, he can do better because he does score goals, but I don't know. Flores should keep the Jordi Palacios uh, role. That's what I think. Fair enough. So, Ore at Hijo del Sol 67 asked, will a healthy Pedro Aquino boost Peru's play in future games? We've already kind of talked about this in previous topics, but Viz, uh, what do you think a healthy Aquino can provide for Peru? Like I said before, I think that Aquino can provide some healthy competition that that midfield needs. I think that Aquino is a good replacement. I think specifically probably for Tapia, but I don't know, maybe even having a, a, a Tapia-Aquino combo and sitting your two now is not far-fetched either. I think that Aquino was missed during this tournament, honestly. I mean, if he had been in shape and if he had been, his health had been well, then uh, I think he would have been no-brainer for the, for the Copa America squad. So, yeah, I do hope that we get him back soon. Last question from Ore as well. With how Abram and Sambrano played in this tournament, is the window shut for Christian Ramos to return to the starting 11? I can personally say yes. I think it's shut pretty much to start the cycle. But Brian, w- would you agree with me on that? It's shut a long time ago. Uh, I think <laughs> since the Ecuador game, I think that's when we started seeing glimpses of Ramos going back to what he used to be before the 24, not 2014, 2015 to 2017, I want to say where he was a decent defender, and uh, that, that spell of Veracruz was very successful for him. So whoever says uh, he was never a good defender, that's a myth. He was pretty good at, uh, at some point, but he used to not be, not be very good at all. And uh, he, he's come back to Melgar, and not even the league he's been holding up that well. So I don't think Ramos, not only that, but he's also aging. So I think Ramos, is, uh, his time is done with the national team. Uh, unless he can prove it, uh, he, he's good enough again. But with Melgar, neither in the Libertadores, neither in the league, he's shown enough for me to, to convince me that uh, he should come back to the national team. It's time to look at other options. And we have a lot of centre-back options uh, from in the league, which we can look at. And then there's Gustavo Dolanto, who just moved to Portugal. Yes. I mean, I know he's not great with the ball, but he's, uh, he can be in Maripan. Uh, I think he's a little bit better in Maripan, personally, because I think he's better defensively. But uh, we got to see how he does continentally. I think Duranto held up on the Libertadores, to be honest, when he played with Garcia. So at least during Ibanez, when he was still there, I think he held up pretty well. Yeah, and don't forget, too, that Santa Maria and Abraham certainly were not too comfortable on the ball, and now they're very comfortable on the ball, having moved abroad. So maybe Dulanto can follow in that similar path. He's still 23, so still very, very young, especially for yes. a defender. Lots of time for him to figure that out for sure. There's also Araujo. There's also, um, well, I know Araujo has looked poor, but that's going to do lack of consistent minutes. There's also um, the likes of Jordi Vilches, who's, had a, who's been pretty good for Municipal, 
not convinced with him for the national team yet, but that with time he'll he'll get on. I, I think he'll get on well. Paolo Fuentes, who I think is a very complete central mid, uh, defender, who um, just needs a little bit uh, more consistency as well. But I think he's uh, another Anderson Santa Maria. I think he's uh, very good on the ball. And uh, defensively, he's quite sound as well. Although not perfect, but he is defensively quite sound. There are some candidates to watch in the future. That will do it for <laughs> us. And thank you very much for listening to us throughout the tournament and every single week as well. We do very much appreciate it. More podcasts to come from here on out, of course. Viz, before we head out, where can the people follow you on Twitter? And are there any shout outs you like to give this week? I just I think we just need to take a second and ponder what we've accomplished. I, I think that getting second place runner-up in the Copa America is quite an achievement. And I know that I already gave out my rant last podcast, but honestly, I, I am extremely thankful for uh, what Gareca and his whole team uh, were able to accomplish and for just kind of making all our lives a little bit happier, even if in the end... We, we did not bring the, the trophy home. My uh, Twitter is at V-I-Z underscore F-C. Well said, Viz. Well said. Brian, where can the people follow you on Twitter, and do you have any shout-outs? Uh, B underscore Bertie 98. No, I don't have any shout-outs. I was going to give Dima a shout-out with Jose Shota up front, the greatest forward in the world. But um, they won the final uh, like a week or a week and a half ago now, so there's no need to give a shout-out. Uh, let's just hope they do well and meet up a sport on Cash International so me and Viz can have a, okay, a fight okay. on the Calm down. Yes. <laughs> Brian's team, air quotes, I am using heavy air quotes, his Peruvian team. It's not Lau at all, guys. Don't worry. It's, it is Deem. Uh, but anyways, you can follow me at Galindo PW. You can follow the show at Peru Waltz. Subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, all that good stuff. So for now, this is the Peruvian Waltz team. We are signing off. Corrubiños en el arco, la defensa es colosal. González, Orlando, La Torre, Nicolás, Fuentes y Chumpitas. Chalemí, Frin y Cubillas y el gran Perico León. Bailón y Alberto Gallardo completan la selección.